from Spam 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 Humbug. I'm Kenneth Cooley, better known as WTF Dragon, and this is a complete reading of Andrea Cantato's Through the Moongate. Chapter 12, Ultima 3, Exodus. I was caught up in the rapid expansion of my skills. Ultima 1 in basic, Ultima 2 in assembly, Ultima 3 in far better assembly. I knew I could get much more out of the little machine with each fresh restart. Richard Garriott, interview with Robert Casarco, Bladed Edge, 2011. The title, Exodus, is a nice irony, considering that Lord British, aka Richard Garriott, left Sierra to found his own company origin during the game's development. Bogdan Ion Perkaru, Games vs. Hardware, The History of PC Video Games, The 80s. Ultima 2 proved to be very similar to its predecessor, with the exception of the engine written entirely in assembly, which freed up additional resources to be used for a bigger game world. The experiment was successful in the sense that players could finally enjoy a fast game, a feature that was painfully missing from Ultima 1, particularly in the dungeons. Switching from random to handcrafted maps raised the player's expectations of the game world. All of these elements were carefully contrived by a designer, as the map had to be consistent and without flaws. We create worlds, said Origin's motto, and now Richard was living up to it. After the events described in Ultima and Ultima 2 Revenge of the Enchantress, Evil seemed defeated. Unfortunately, before perishing, Mondane and Minex had generated their own offspring, just as evil and even more powerful. Exodus was terrorizing Caesarea with his hordes of bloodthirsty and destructive monsters from his impenetrable fortress on Fire Island. Once again, the stranger from another world was called upon to defeat this new enemy. As before, Richard chose the name Exodus for the new opponent purely out of fascination and without knowing the real meaning of the word. Though Richard's mother, Helen, provided the initial box art for the game, ultimately, Dennis Lubay's artwork graced the box. It presented Exodus as being similar to a demon or other diabolical being. This choice would create a series of headaches for Richard's company, with accusations of Satanism and corruption of young gamers flowing in in angry letters. But these were inconsistent with the true nature of the game's archenemy. Exodus was neither human nor demonic, but something very, very similar to an intelligent supercomputer with its own will. To defeat Exodus, the player first had to understand its weak points, exploring the cities of Caesarea and collecting information from its inhabitants. Once this was done, the stranger could leave for the actual mission, which was to recover three tools that were indispensable for the final fight. Four marks found in the lowest and most dangerous levels of the dungeons, exotic arms, which were on two islands, and four arcane objects known as cards, placed in the sanctuaries of the continent of Ambrosia although the correct translation would rather be perforated cards, very similar to the early computer storage systems Richard had worked with in high school, and which would therefore qualify Exodus as a vintage computer. Equipped with these objects, the stranger was ready to travel to Fire Island, battling Exodus's hordes of creatures surviving continuous explosions in the fortress, and finally facing Exodus in a showdown. The last challenge was to insert the punch cards in the correct order, as previously indicated by the Time Lord. Failure to do so led to the player's death and the end of the adventure. Richard had finally created a well-balanced system in which the four main activities of the game, exploration, visiting cities to talk to the NPCs, descending into the dungeons, and, of course, combat, finally came together. 
None of the maps in Exodus were as empty as some of the planets of Ultima 2, and the dungeons, negligible in the previous adventure, were again indispensable in order to defeat this ultimate enemy. The result was a better designed and much more interesting and complex game than its predecessor. Where Ultima 2 was more of the same, Exodus was a clear step forward, while not departing much from the established game model. The engine was basically the same, although enhanced and retouched. One of the biggest innovations, however, was the introduction of the party system. The first two Ultima games were role-playing games in which the player could only control a single character, while other popular titles of the day, the Wizardry series or Dungeon for the Plato, were focused on managing a group of adventurers. Experience until now only influenced the amount of spawning monsters and classes, and had no influence beside changing stats, except for Ultima 2 with its spell system for magicians and clerics. With Ultima 3, Richard completed the greatest transformation in his game design to date, implementing an XP and leveling system more similar to that of Dungeons & Dragons, and a party system that involved the control of a group of four heroes. Life points for all of these heroes started at 100 and were raised by 100 with each new level, gaining one every 1,000 XP, up to a maximum of 2,550 hit points. Lord British's donations were also linked to level increases, and therefore required the player to adventure, explore, grind, and collect experience. The hit point limit avoided the problem of rollover, and the new feature system, which tied the maximum value achievable to the character's race, solved the problem of statistics rollover. Statistics were reduced from 6 to 4, with strength and dexterity affecting the outcome of fights, and intelligence and wisdom affecting spells and magic points. Players could compose the party freely by choosing from four classes, two of these being spellcasters, magicians, and clerics. In addition, Richard implemented another level of hero customization called Professions, this added further limits and character specializations. Since each profession affected a character's equipment, ability to steal or disarm traps, and available magic points. The division of spells between wizards and clerics, moreover, was complete and distinct, each having their own set of spells. Although a big step closer to games like Wizardry, with Exodus, Richard had maintained many features from the earlier Ultima games. In particular, the need for food, and different representations of the overworld maps and dungeons were still present, the latter enhanced by using solid color planes instead of wireframe graphics. The combat system, on the other hand, was completely revolutionized, having to take into account the party. On the surface map and in dungeons, the party moved like a single character, switching to a special combat screen when meeting enemies. In the dungeon, the prior visible enemies were replaced with random encounters similar to Wizardry's system. The combat screen was a tactical view showing each party member and enemy, using a turn-based system. With each turn, players chose whether their character would attack, cast a spell, or move a square. The Wizardry series had a party system from its first installment onward, but in combat mode the party was simply split into a front line for melee fighters and a rear guard, support characters with ranged weapons or magical skills. These concepts were copied by many other games in the following years, but not Ultima 3. On the contrary, in Ultima 3, the player had to take into account a further element, tactical movement on a small map, and trying to maintain a defensive front line that would prevent enemies from breaking through and attacking more vulnerable members of the party. Garriott's system was innovative, but not flawless. Enemies were guided by a simple algorithm and ended up moving in a straight line to the nearest player character, and were therefore easy targets for long-range weapons. To counterbalance this lack of a sophisticated AI, Richard decided to give the monsters the ability to attack diagonally which is impossible for player-led party members. 
In Exodus, compared to previous games with parties like Wizardry, the player did not choose the actions of their characters in advance, as these were executed simultaneously along with those of the enemies. Instead, the player picked the action for a character and saw the outcome immediately. Another flaw in the combat system of Ultima 3 was that battles took longer, causing repercussions on the pace of play. More complex clashes benefited from the turn-based system, but numerous random encounters with weak enemies were cumbersome. The same could be said of character creation at the beginning. The player had to first create all four members of the party, save them, select them from the group of heroes with whom he or she intended to play, before finally starting the game. In battles, experience was attributed only to the character who executed the final deadly blow. Supporting heroes, such as clerics or thieves, had to be used offensively, or at least launching the fatal attack, in order to gain experience points. In fact, via the professions system, Exodus favored hybrid characters that were able to use powerful weapons and armor as well as cast some spells. In Ultima 2, death led to resurrection at the starting point near Lord British's castle. In Exodus, the death of all party members ended the game, while a single character could be resurrected on the fly. Lord British's in-game persona no longer demanded gifts from the player, so it was advisable to create a party maximizing the number of characters capable of healing and, in the advanced stages of the game, perform the resurrection spell Dag Mentar. Ultima 3 Exodus became an unexpected success. The first 100,000 copies, shipped in August of 1983, were followed by more orders. The ranking of the retailer Softline saw Exodus in third place on Apple's platform in 1984, but the overall result was even more encouraging since OSI published Exodus at the same time for the Atari 800, Commodore 64, and IBM PC. Given Richard's passion and the choice to develop on the Apple II, the most accurate version was certainly the one for Cupertino's computers. To make Exodus even more enjoyable, he decided to equip his new game with sound effects and music. The Apple II was only stocked with an internal loudspeaker operated by a clicker. Just as Silas Warner had managed to get such a poorly equipped system to produce speech, many other programmers soon managed the complex task of producing music. Ultima II had also used the basic Apple II speaker to create simple sound effects but OSI had a bigger surprise for players of Exodus. Since his early youth, Steve Wozniak had stood out for his hacker personality. The anecdotes about his Blue Box, a device built and marketed together with Steve Jobs and used to confuse telecommunications companies' switchboards to make free phone calls, explain his attitude to electronics as tools for a tinkerer. His Apple II was created as an open and expandable machine, able to benefit from technology that in 1977 was not yet available in the form of expansion cards. For example, the language card was an expansion that allowed Apple II owners to program in Pascal, and also increased system RAM by a further 16K. In 1980, Microsoft produced its first hardware component, the Microsoft Z80 SoftCard. Equipped with a Zilog Z80 chip, it enabled Wozniak's microcomputer to run the CPM operating system, which was the most popular operating system at the time, with MS-DOS yet to be released. One of the most innovative expansion boards was the Sweet Microsystems Mockingboard. It gave the Apple II good sound capabilities, but was slightly inferior to the excellent SID of the Commodore 64. Depending on the version, the Mockingboard was equipped with one or two General Instruments AY38910 chips, with which it could generate up to six audio channels. Mockingboards also shipped with a chip dedicated to the reproduction of the human voice. A big strength was that the audio chips could work independently, without the Apple II CPU reserving too many resources to control them. Introduced in 1981, it was not yet widespread in 1983. Kenneth Arnold came across one of these just before Richard started programming Exodus, and proposed using it to give the new game a musical feature that previous installments had lacked. To say nothing of almost all other Apple II games. According to Arnold, 
When I approached Richard with the idea of adding a soundtrack to Ultima 3, he was excited. I described how different phases of the game could have different tunes to set the mood, adding that some tunes could be special effects to indicate specific achievements. He loved the idea. I told him there was a lot of Renaissance music available that would fit his game and that it was royalty-free, but he said, oh no, I want an original score, and so began my mini-career as a game music composer. Arnold had always been a music lover, as well as a computer enthusiast. At age 14, I was frequenting the local music stores to play with the music synthesizers. I played the Minimoog, ARP Odyssey, and ARP 2600 synths until the shopkeepers threw me out. At 15, I had raised enough money flipping hamburgers to purchase my own synthesizer in kit form, an Ares. Using the Mockingboard to make music on the Apple II was no easy task. There were several technical obstacles to overcome, the first of which was the fact that when Wozniak had designed his most famous microcomputer, he had not imagined the usefulness of a hardware clock for timer interrupts. This would be a showstopper for preemptive multitasking and a big issue to play music in sync with what was going on in any game. In addition, there was no free space left in the memory of the Apple II, when running Ultima 3, to load the data needed for music. Arnold had to find solutions to all of these problems. For the memory, he used the language card, and a trick that allowed him to exploit an additional 4K of memory that normally remained unused. As for the timing of the notes, James Van Artstallen came to his rescue, the friend with whom he had prepared the demonstration for the Computer Lovers Club and who now worked at Origin Systems. The Mockingboard had a timer that could be used to interrupt the CPU if properly programmed. The problem was that it ended up corrupting the disk operating system. Van Artstallen was able to find a way to modify the DOS and prevent it from crashing, allowing the Mockingboard to interrupt the CPU to play the notes at the right time. According to Arnold, We still had the problem of inter-process communication, a way for the game to signal the music system what tune to play. I came up with a simple and foolproof method. When the game wanted to switch the tune, it simply wrote a song selection value, 0 to 15, with 0 meaning silent, to a specific location in memory. The music system pulled the song value during the ISR. If it had changed, the music system stopped the current song, started the new song, and reported the new selection in another location which the game could pull. This proved to be a good and stable solution. After solving all of these complex issues with interrupts, the lack of a clock, the lack of memory, and even fighting with the operating system, there was still the issue of creating the actual music. Not having any expertise in the field, Richard gave Arnold carte blanche, but he wanted an original soundtrack. In Ultima 3, I chose the British National Anthem as Lord Bridge's theme, and it always appeared in a minor key when he was absent or imprisoned. It was fairly easy to come up with themes for Ultima 3 because I could write anything. But for Ultimus 4 and 5, I had to remain truthful to the original series. There were a number of tunes I wrote which Richard rejected, but he became more cooperative as deadlines approached. Actually, it was Robert who often said, good enough, Richard and I could have polished forever. The result were seven compositions, Wanderer, Town, Castle, Dungeon, Combat, Shopping, and Exodus's Castle, the Isle of Fire, that were loaded and played in a contextual way, depending on the situation in the game. Wanderer was played in the introduction and during exploration of the overworld. Town and castle, when the action moved to cities or the castle of Lord British. Combat, during the battles, and so on. According to Arnold, I often dedicated them to friends and relatives. Lady Nan refers to my wife at the time, and Joe refers to my daughter Joanna. I chose duple meter for walking around music. Left, right, left, right. Triple meter for courtly tunes, a la minuets. Hextuple meter for at least one of the battle tunes, jarring effect, etc. Despite the low impact on the public, there were very few users in possession of an Apple II with the expensive language card and the mockingboard installed simultaneously. 
the addition of music to video games would be repeated in all subsequent games, with an increasingly expanding soundtrack. In 1983, it was quite common that a video game would have accompanying music, at least on microcomputers like the Commodore 64, which was shipped with the powerful SID chip. But Ken Arnold had gone further, creating a high-quality soundtrack adapting to the game situation, solemn in the presence of Lord British, more animated in combat. Ultima 3 Exodus was released simultaneously for three different platforms in addition to the Apple II. As Sierra Online had done with Ultima 2, OSI immediately marketed a version for the Atari 800, a very popular platform in North America. Since the basic Atari 800 was equipped with quite advanced sound capabilities, the soundtrack was included without the need for expansions, and the game was reproduced faithfully, thanks to the fact that the Atari was based on the Moss 6502. The Commodore 64 version could rely on the SID chip, and came with the complete soundtrack, again, due to the fact that the Commodore 64 was based on the Moss 6510, an evolution of the 6502, porting was done by Chuck Bichet, without modifications, except for the black and white dungeons. Much less ambitious was the IBM PC port. In 1983, Garriott was not incorrect to consider IBM's new machine as being uninteresting for games. Released just two years prior, the IBM PC was equipped with an internal speaker only slightly more advanced compared to the six-year-old Apple II. Early games used it for sound effects and music, but Arnold's complex soundtrack was beyond its limited capabilities. More capable sound devices, PC Junior, Tandy, would be available in 1984, and dedicated PC sound cards wouldn't come on the market until 1987. Despite its young age, the IBM PC was unimpressive in the graphics department as well, as it was created to serve primarily as a business machine. The CGA graphics system, that stands for Color Graphics Adapter, the standard created in 1981 at the launch of the PC, only supported resolutions of 320 by 200 with four colors from a palette of 16, or in high resolution mode, 640 by 200 monochrome. This would change the following year with the introduction of the EGA standard, but in 1983 the IBM PC was not the platform for games. Consequently, the PC version of Ultima 3 offered simple graphics, no soundtrack, and had a high number of bugs, some of which were very serious, if not game-breaking. Additionally, the IBM PC and its clones would over time get faster CPUs, and many games would run too fast, becoming unplayable. To learn more, subscribe to Spam 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 Humbug on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us on Anchor.fm at anchor.fm slash podcast or at spam 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 humbug.com. To find out more about Through the Moongate, visit thera.it. That's T H E I R A dot I T. You can also find the book on Amazon. And of course, you can learn more about the book and its author at andreacantado.com. That's A N D R E A C O N T A T O dot Com. A big thank you to author Andrea Cantato for not only undertaking the effort of writing through the Moongate, but also for agreeing to allow for it to be read to you in this and following Spam 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 Humbug episodes. Tune in in a couple weeks' time for the next chapter. I'm going to make some games and I'll show them to you when I'm done.